Conversations, the podcast where those who work with teaching others new skills learn from others in fields they may never have thought about, especially rehab, music, and teaching. I'm your host, Diana Rumrail. Today for episode two, I'm really happy to have with us Andrew Byrne. I encountered Andrew's book, The Singing Athlete, Brain-Based Training for Your Voice, back in 2020, when returning to singing with others was still a dream of the future. Here's more about Andrew. Andrew Byrne is a New York City-based singing teacher and author of number one bestseller, The Singing Athlete, Brain-Based Training for Your Voice. Andrew's students have been seen in over 80 Broadway shows. Andrew has served on creative teams for the Sundance Theater Lab, Yale Repertory Theater, North Shore Musical Theater, and many others. On television, he has worked as a vocal coach for America's Got Talent and Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, on Showtime. Twice named New York City's favorite vocal coach in the Backstage Reader's Choice Awards, Andrew travels the world to bring his brand of brain-focused training to singers across the globe. In 2016, he was appointed by the U.S. State Department as the first arts envoy to the nation of Belarus, where he led the inaugural Russian language production of the Pulitzer Prize winning Next to Normal. Other international teaching assignments have taken him to Singapore, Switzerland, Denmark, France, China, and five times to Australia at the Victorian College of the Arts. In North America, Andrew has enjoyed four teaching residencies in Canada, including the Banff Center, and served as guest faculty for the University of Michigan Musical Theater Department. He has also been a guest clinician with organizations such as the Tangled Institute, Cornell University, and Ithaca College. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I'm here with Andrew Byrne, thank you so much for being on Brain Conversations, Andrew. Thank, thank you, Diana. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. So I um, asked you to be on the show because I really enjoyed your book, The Singing Athlete, Brain-Based Training for Your Voice. And I was re reading through your book today, and I found that you had written something about that subtitle, A Brain-Based Approach to Training gives equal weight to sensory, interpretive, and motor elements. And I was yes. wondering if you might, you know, use that to begin talking about, you know, a, what is a brain-based approach and how does that differ from a traditional approach? Absolutely, yeah. So my book, I, I call it The Singing Athlete because um, my background briefly is as a musician um, and a voice teacher. My degrees are in vocal pedagogy. so. I've been studying to be a voice teacher since I was 18. Um, that's been my focus all along. And so I'm in a very lucky position where I actually get to do every day the thing that I've always loved. But what happened to me was I moved to New York in the year 2000. I got into a Broadway job um, playing in the pit orchestra of Les Miserables, um, which was uh, a dream job and awesome opportunity. But I was someone who I, I grew up playing piano uh, professionally. I put myself through school playing for singers. So I was uh, in voice lessons for about eight to 10 years of my life, several, many, many times a week, um, listening to great teachers. That's how I learned to do what I do, I think. It's like an apprenticeship. However, I was always a natural at piano. As a singer, I've had to learn everything I know how to do. As a pianist, I was, I was always pretty good. 
So a lot of my teachers would be like, that sounds great. Let's do some Beethoven. And so it was, I had some mechanical problems in my playing that were not being addressed. And then I started to get really successful at it and was doing it all the time and had not taken care of some of the physical problems that I was having. And so I started to have very persistent elbow pain in my left elbow. Um, I, looking back on it, stupidly started to brace it to try to get through the show. And then I started to have problems in my shoulder, which I'm sure you as a violinist can understand that that's maybe wasn't really addressing the core problem that I had. And so I was doing Les Mis. I also then got several jobs in a row in music director contracts around the country, started to have nerve problems. My hand would turn bright red when I played on the left. My right would look normal at the end of the show. I was having tingling, all this, you know, everything that we know that a nerve problem would be. And this was before the internet was what it is today. So I was in whatever random town trying to fix myself by going to a PT or massage therapist and not getting better. And so I came back to New York after this and I spent six months of my life reducing my schedule to the bare minimum. I couldn't touch the piano without being in pain. Um, and I thought, well, I might have to do something else with my life. But there, I realized there was nothing else that I am on earth to do. This is the thing I'm on earth to do. And so I thought, well, it's either, I've either got to fix myself or just give up entirely. And I was like, I'm going to fix myself. And so along the way, I've studied lots of different modalities. So for the past 20 plus years now, I've been studying outside of the music field in courses. I've taken three courses in the past month um, that I've traveled to go to because I'm very committed to my own education being as up to date as possible for the entire musical and vocal community. Um, but that is how I did it. I, I just went outside of our field and was like, there's some reason that my body's not right. And along the way, something no teacher had ever asked me about was I have a giant scar on my left pelvis from a left inguinal hernia I had when I was four. And obviously I was four. I didn't do any proper rehab for it. I just, they were like, you move okay. You seem fine. Never was asked about it in any music or vocal situation. And when I started to deal with that, all of a sudden my elbow pain and shoulder pain went away. And so I became very fascinated by things that we might not be thinking about that we think, oh, that happened when I was four. That can't possibly be affecting me now. And, and I am certainly living proof that that is not true, that that stuff can affect you. And so it created a whole shift for me in the way I trained singers starting over 20 years ago, where I just thought, I have to look at the whole body. I can't just be looking at the vocal folds or a scope of someone's larynx. That is not the entire story. That's good information, but that is, and that may be all someone needs, but it also might not. And one of my biggest things that gets me up in the morning is I want to help a hundred percent of people who walk through my door. And so I often, when I present to voice teachers, will say stuff like, you know how you have your tricks for whatever. So someone comes in and they're like, I can't sing high notes. And you go, okay, let's do a cry exercise or let's do a tilt or whatever. And it works. And you're like, I'm the best voice teacher in the world. I'm amazing. And the next person comes in and it works. And you're like, I got this. Next person comes in and is like, I can't sing high notes. And you do it and it doesn't work. Or it actually does the opposite effect where it actually makes them worse. And so that is, it's tempting as the teacher to be like, oh, you're just not getting it. And I'm just going to say it again and again and again, or I'm going to just get get irritated because I'm like, but this works for everybody. Why isn't it working for you? And then the singer, the performer, which is all, who's already in a very vulnerable state, can start to feel like, 
oh, I'm bad or I'm not good at this because I'm not getting it the way that everybody else gets it seemingly. And so it is very important in my teaching mission to say, I don't want to be that person. I want to help everyone and to acknowledge that everyone's nervous system is absolutely different. Everyone's body is different. One of the courses I just spent uh, last weekend doing was I did for the first time ever a human dissection course where I dissected real bodies and we have three donors. And what was so interesting is that no one looks the same on the inside. So it is not possible to say, oh, well, this is what you have going on because there is incredible variety in humans. And so that is what I base my system on. And I call it the singing athlete and not the burn method or whatever, because they're at the center of the system, their body, their brain, their voice is going to tell me what's happening. My job as the coach is to follow that and to go interesting. When we did this thing, that didn't work for you at all, but we did this other way of getting to the same target and you responded. Awesome. What am I learning about your brain when that happens? That's the lens that I try to use. So back to your original question to say, what does that mean about a brain-based system? That is what it means, but the sensory interpretive and motor element of it is the following. So if we think of the nervous system boiled down to 101, to what's the simplest way we can say it, our nervous system is taking in information, it's deciding what to do about it and creating some kind of output. That is what we are doing all day long as humans thousands, millions of times a day. We're, we're making these decisions. And so an example from a voice training thing is stuff like lift your soft palate. So we'll say, well, lift your palate. And you're like, well, that's a motor command to lift your palate. Is it possible to lift your palate? Obviously, yes. Are there some reasons though someone might not be so good at lifting their palate? For instance, you had a bad tonsil surgery that didn't go so well. Is it possible that your brain could go well, that sucked. And so I'm going to turn down all of the sensory nerves in that area because I don't want to feel that ever again. And even if you know consciously as a human that that needed to be corrected, your subconscious reflexive brain, which is the lion's share of the brain, is not thinking that way. It's like, that was terrible. That was a threat to my staying alive. I never want to feel that again. So I'm going to turn all of that down. So a simple example, if you want at home to try this, is you can just gargle, take some liquid in your mouth and gargle and ask yourself, do I feel the sensation on the left and the right side of my throat the same? And if you do this, about 50% of you will think, no, I actually don't feel that the same on either side. And so if the instruction is lift the palate, that could work great. Or it could be that the person has a reason that they don't feel that very well and my thought is always, have I assessed that on the person? Have I assessed their sensory system to figure out if they can even feel what's happening? So my shorthand for that is if I can't feel it, I can't fix it. If I have a sensory issue and a sensory issue can be that can be cutaneous or skin sensation or mucosal sensation. It could be how I see, like, what are my eyes doing right now? Because that is a huge way, of course, that we perceive the outside environment, the biggest way we perceive that. How am I hearing? How is my balance? Even stuff like, can I smell out of both nostrils has a has a impact? Can I taste everywhere on my tongue? All of this could make a change. And the, the reason my book is pretty long is that I have a long teaching career. I've been teaching for 30 years, private voice. And everything in the book is something I've seen be the key for at least one, if not more singers. And so I ended up using that as my litmus test of what made the cut for the book, because there's, of course, always more to explore, but just things that I've seen be the key for someone. 
I put in there. And there's a lot of sensory exercises because of what I just said, because it is, it is often a missing piece of instructions like use your diaphragm or get the tongue out of the way. Do those instructions work? Sure. It's just that if they don't work for you, doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that you, maybe you have a sensory deficit that needs to be corrected. Yeah, thank you. Um, that is, uh, that's definitely, you know, needed in rehab as well as music or any kind of teaching. Yeah. I wanted to go back and, and, you know, something you had um, briefly touched on, and this is page five of your book, um, Brain Basics. Humans are survival-based organisms. Staying alive is more important than performing well. You had mentioned that. Yeah. Um, and do you mind, and then um, right after that, you had an analogy called the threat bucket. Yeah. Uh, do you mind um, no, saying something about that? It. I love the threat bucket. Sure. So the idea is that you have an imaginary bucket in your brain called the threat bucket. And so as you go through your day and your life, things are dumping into the threat bucket. So an example I use ish in the book is like, let's just say, you know, you have a fight with your boyfriend, so you don't sleep and you get up late. So you don't have time to eat a proper breakfast and then your train's delayed and the threat bucket is just going up, 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 up. The water is rising in the threat bucket. So this imaginary bucket, what your brain thinks is going to happen is that if the water reaches the top, it thinks you're going to die. So it will create some kind of output, like a spigot or a faucet in the threat bucket. So some of the water drains off. And what the common theme of things that drain out of the threat bucket is, is things that stop you from moving. Because we have this analogy in the brain of fight, flight, or freeze. So sympathetic nervous system, it's known as. And so it is it is in that order. So it's a metabolic thing of we're designed to fight first for whatever it is that we, we need. And if that starts to be too hard, we go into a flight where we run away. And then the last step is a freeze, like a attempt at playing dead. Essentially, I use the analogy in the book of like antelope runs away from the lion on the Serengeti. Antelope gets caught before the before it dies. It actually will go limp where it's still when it's still alive to try to as a last ditch effort to trick the lion because maybe the lion will be like this antelope's dead and the antelope plays dead as a reflex and then gets up and runs away. And so it's this last ditch way to save ourselves. And so the threat bucket is this sort of last ditch thing. And so some of the outputs for the threat bucket for humans might be an illness. It might be allergies. It might be vocal problems like getting hoarse or something like that. It could be something emotional like depression or anxiety. And what these things are all sharing is they're things that stop you from moving that essentially force you into a freeze state. And so we are looking to stay out of that because that is the last thing before the organism dies. So we don't want to be in the freeze. And so in my view, good training is taking water down in the threat bucket. We're trying to reduce the level of threat in anything. And so the process that I use, I just call it assess and reassess. And so it's pretty simple. You just sing something, scale, a phrase of music. It can be any style. It doesn't have to be any particular style of singing. Everything's equal to me. And so you just sing something. And then if you're working with me live, I usually will do something physical as well. So I might do a muscle test with you to see how your body is responding reflexively. I might look at your range of motion, might look at your balance, something else so that I have a secondary confirmation. So I'm not guessing as the coach, I do the assessment. Then 
whatever you've told me, and I should say that the first chapter of the book is my own history. It's my own medical history because I think it's good to destigmatize that. It doesn't matter. We've all been through stuff. Everyone's just doing their best to get through life. So either based on what you've told me you've gone through or I'm using my instincts, I'm going to try something with you. I'm going to work on some system of your body. And then instead of just assigning you that for homework, I'm going to see if it worked. So I'm going to have you sing again. And then I'm going to probably do some kind of secondary confirmation of another system in the body. If there was a positive change, like let's say you turned your head 10 degrees further and your voice was clearer, there was less pressure. I call that the high payoff exercise. And to me, the high payoff exercise lower the water in the threat bucket. That is how I believe that it works neurologically so that we are, I am trying to give you homework as an artist of things to do regularly that create this reduction of threat. And the only way to know is to test stuff. And so it requires a curiosity about your own body and your own brain to go, I'm different than every other person on earth. Yes, there are rules and paths through the body and the brain, but I have to be curious about my own interpretation because you and I both know there's billions of neurons, trillions of possible connections. Nobody knows how it all works, certainly me included. And I think the cert there's a certain joy and mystery in that of getting up and going, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's see. I know what good singing sounds like and looks like. I know what good physical function looks like. And I know it and feels like. And I'm going to use that lens with you and then give you very individualized homework. And then what I love folks to do is to go try it. So I'm working with mostly professional performers. So just today, I have a guy who's had several gigs since I've seen him. He comes in, tells me everything about, yeah, I did this and this was amazing. This worked up great in the studio. This didn't work so well so that we keep tailoring what it is that we are trying to do to get him to the best possible uh, output for himself as a performer. Um, and that's great that you were mentioning the high high payoff. payoff. Oh, um, yeah. And that I was noticing that you have high, you know, you're noticing whether something yeah. is high payoff, neutral, or, or rehab. rehab drill. Yeah. And um and yeah, so talk so about rehab drill yeah. might be something that is increasing someone's that's right. level. But that's I exactly liked right. that you um I think like as maybe in general in our society but musician you know we tend to have you know do the threatening thing again and again until yeah. you just muscle through it um and right. can you see how you would use yeah those three or, or two yeah 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 so let categories. me just use an example so so if you know my, my first rep of singing goes if i loved you and i kind of crack and then I do my drill and I go, if I loved you and it feels great. Okay, awesome. That's high payoff. It's also possible though, that I'm going to start pretty well. And then I do a drill and I go, if I, and I actually get really a bad result. So that would be a rehab drill to me, a drill that's raising threat. So the way that I usually will talk about it is that every drill I have in the book, none of those drills should do that. But anyone who actually does all the drills in the book will find rehab drills because life is scary. It's the full contact sport and things happen and the brain starts to get to be afraid of doing things. And so we have to find a way to not ignore that. But as you said, not just be like, just keep doing this thing because it's actually causing your nervous system to potentially get more toward the freeze where you just shut down. 
So that's where like the art of coaching really comes in. And so what I say in the book is that your high payoff stuff is supposed to happen right before performance. So what I have people doing backstage at Broadway shows is doing their eye exercise right before they walk on, doing their ab exercise right before they walk on, whatever it is their homework is for me. I want them doing that right beforehand because I know that's putting their brain into a feeling of safety, which obviously to get on stage in front of thousands of people is pretty scary. So there's a... Um, I want them doing that stuff right beforehand. The rehab drills, what I want you doing is practicing those at a time when it is separated from performance, including athletic performance. So personally, I'll do mine in the morning before I go to bed. I'll work slowly and in a regression on those things. So let's say I have a drill where I slide my eyes to the left and I watch my finger go to the left and I experience a sudden sweatiness. I feel nauseous. I get a headache. Those are all signs of I've stumbled onto a rehab drill. So specifically for the example of eyes, which is a very common way to find a rehab drill, let's say sliding to the left did that. What could I do as the artist to deal with that? Because that shouldn't cause me that reaction, right? That's not actually a normal reaction. So I need to address that in some way. If I ignore it, that's not good either because then I'm still having that problem every time I have to look to my left um, or slide my eyes to my left. So I have to deal with it, but I have to find a way to deal with it that's not creating the threat. And I often will describe a minimal effective dose, which is a term using drug trials of like, is this enough of the drug to create a change, but not too much to cause an overdose? And it's the same thing with physical exercise. So some ways I could do that are, let's say I was standing up and doing my eye exercise. I could sit down. I could sit with my back against a chair or a couch. I could sit on the ground, my back against a wall, or I could even lie down because the more physical contact I have, the less scared I will be. Falling down is one of the biggest threats of being a human. So having that contact, the proprioception of that will reduce the fear I also could change how far I'm going and how fast I'm going. So I, maybe I'm going too fast or I'm just going too far from my brain right now. Additionally, in terms of the example of eyes, I could try it if I wear corrective lenses with the corrective lenses on or with them off. Maybe one of those is going to go better. I could also change the color that I'm looking through. So I, this is an audio, but you can see behind me there in, in this shot, I've got a bunch of glasses on the wall there with different colors. So I could try looking through a different color. Different colors affect different sides of the brain and different portions of the brain. So maybe there's a way that I could change the color or the, the brightness of the light to get myself into a more relaxed state. And then for me, if you're in a long range coaching thing with me, I'm going to keep working on these rehab drills with you because we do not want to see that. We want to see that reaction get less extreme. We want to see you not have that problem when you're doing that. Because at least for stage artists, you never know when you're going to be asked to do literally anything. Um, like you never know what you're going to have to do. So we want to have this really complete look at like other systems that may have not been looked at in previous voice lessons, at least. So that's the way that I, I generally think of, of working with rehab. And one more thing I should say is you can use your high payoff drills before your rehab drills. So the way I say that to artists is do something good before you do something bad. So do something that your brain likes and puts you in a, a state of safety before you do the thing that's really stressful for you. That's great. Um, I like what you're saying, how, you know, a performer could be asked to do 
literally anything. Anything. <laughs> and um, I felt that your your approach, um, what kept coming up for me as I was, you know, reviewing your book in general was that it was not only consistent practice for drills, like you know, a lot of you yeah. know, as a musician, like be consistent in your practice and right. repetition is the key. Yep. Um, but it's also builds resiliency. Um, yeah. 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 It's, that... it's, it's, it's called sometimes a library of priors, like so a library of prior experiences so that when presented with a new situation, you're not like, oh God, I didn't know I had threat in this area. And so that's the way that I think of good training is that I'm trying to get you into whatever you have to do specifically in your current project, but also in like the longer view, I'm trying to get you through a lot of systems in the body just to figure out if I'm missing something, to feel like it's something where you're like, well, wow, it's really weird that when you turn your head to the left, like you just lose all sense of where the floor is or whatever. I want to know that for, for you as a singer, as a dancer, as just a mover, as a person, I want to test that stuff. And personally, I I love that process. I think it's very interesting to uncover those things that may have not been looked at because it hasn't come up in a very direct way. But I think, yeah, the resiliency piece really comes from being endlessly curious about your own body and going, what are some things that I haven't done? I say in the book, what you said about repetition, the way to get good motor learning, which singing, violin, piano, whatever, is motor learning. Good motor learning is frequency, attention, and novelty. I'm a fan, F-A-N. So frequency obviously is repetition. Attention is, am I actually focused on whatever I'm working on? And then novelty is where I come in in your life, which is to say, if it's the same all the time, your brain starts to get bored. And what we know about brain maps is that we have a motor cortex, which is the back part of the frontal lobe. And then we have what's called the cerebellum, which is the little brain tucked under the back. And the cerebellum is there for lots of parts of the body. It's extremely dense with neurons, but it is um, dealing with error correction. And so when you're learning a new skill, the cerebellum fires a lot. If you're learning a new song, a new piece, whatever, it's firing. And then if I give you a new way to do something, it's going to wake up the cerebellum. When you get really good at doing it over and over again, it's going to shift to much more of the motor cortex. That's a less metabolically demanding part of the brain. So it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective why we would have that. If you think about brushing your teeth or whatever, you're like, I don't have to think about brushing my teeth because in these automatic parts of the brain. But what is so interesting about metabolism is that the cerebellum, because it is metabolic, it actually will make us feel more awake and alert when that area is being challenged. And that's some of the interpretation part that you were mentioning at the beginning of the call today to say, like, there's a, a waking up of the brain when we have to actually do something in a new way. And what's specific to singers that's important to know is that the vestibular system, which is our balance system, is very tied to the cerebellum. We have a vestibulo cerebellum and your balance system, your vestibular system is your rhythm center in the body. So singers who are like, I am not in the pocket or musicians who are not in the pocket rhythmically, that is a vestibular issue and it is tied to your cerebellum. So in all the neuro classes I take, they just consider the vestibular system and the cerebellum to be the same system. It's treated as one system because it's so intimately tied together. And the cool thing to know about that is that there's certain muscles in the body that are controlled or more controlled by the cerebellum. So 
I do a lot of muscle testing with that stuff like your posterior muscles, like your lat, posterior deltoid, triceps, they have a cerebellar element. So if if I'm starting to think you have a coordination thing on one side of your body, we're not so coordinated, I'm going to usually do some muscle testing with you to make sure I'm right about the pattern that I'm seeing. And just to go back to myself as the example, so I left-sided pain, left-sided elbow shoulder pain, the left scar, and I started to do coordination exercises on my left side. And all of a sudden, again, I started being like, I feel much better. I feel way less pain, more stable. And years later, when I learned more about the cerebellum, I was like, well, that's that's why, because I was firing. If you move your left side, you're firing your left cerebellum. There's a lot of lefts and rights in neuroscience, as you and I both know. But to say, this is ipsilateral, it's same-sided. So I can improve that just by doing exercises. And I sell a class called bands and benches on my site, which is a cerebellar workout because cerebellum is circular motions. And uh, whenever you're making circles or figure eights, you're firing your cerebellum much more. So a lot of the physical training I do is not in linear motions; It's in circular emotions because that is more firing of the cerebellum which is again, your error correction center in the brain, super important for performers to have a robust cerebellum because you're taking in information all the time and trying to make an output from it. And it's also injury prevention because it's correcting errors as you move and related to rhythm, like I said. So it's a, a favorite part of the brain for me to think about. I could talk about this stuff all day. But yeah, I know. I, I, know, I know you know a lot about it too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing before you yeah. can tell us more about how people sure. can work with you. Yeah. Um, I are okay. Yes. Our last episode focused a lot on brain laterality, right versus cool. left. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that on page eight, you were talking about describing positive observations um, kind of in, in right brain terms to make yeah. the change more sticky for yeah. giving feedback right. to a student. Do, um, yeah. do you mind talking about no, that? Sure, sure. Yeah. So the, the idea would be like verbal center is left brain and imagistic kind of stuff would be more in the right brain. And I'm sure your guests have this too, but it's like, this is, these are general maps, but also there is of course, tons of communication. So I think it is good to think we have this corpus callosum in the center, which is this very dense network of connections between the left and the right hemispheres. So I love this stuff too. I love thinking like laterality in the brain. I also think it's good to be like, nothing is like a definite and everyone is kind of everything. <laughs> so we can use that as like a jumping off point to see how you respond. But I think it is good to notice like how you respond to verbal cues versus an, an image. So if you can see behind me in the studio here, I have lots of gear because I'm always kind of testing what someone responds to. And I'll try to keep track of that. I have a weird memory for this stuff. So if I show someone whatever the larynx or the scapula or the pelvis, and I notice that they start to really get it. And I'm not saying much about it. I'm just like, look at the pelvis and sing it. And it starts to work. Then I start to think, okay, well, that's probably firing the right brain a little bit more. And if, if I say to someone, look, you need to think of this note as being this way. And I'm describing something verbally to them and they do it. And that starts to work. I think, okay, maybe that's a little more in the left brain. And to me, the interest about the cortex stuff, because uh, I am always interested in functional things. I'm interested in things that are going to improve function. 
So I'm interested in the brain stem. So we have this thing called the PMRF, pontomedullary reticular formation. So the PMRF is this loosely connected series of nuclei in the brainstem that along with the cerebellum that I mentioned and the vestibular system is promoting a reflexive posture, a reflexive stability in the body. And it's also got some ipsilateral firing. So if I am going to activate my right cortex, that's going to fire down more the right PMRF for stability. And some questions people can ask themselves about the brainstem is, do I have an injury history on one side of the body? Have I had more injuries on one side? That would be potentially a thing to look into the brainstem on that same side because it's promoting the stability in the body. Also, ipsilateral chronic pain is another really big one and even autonomic stuff, like having different, like one side gets sweatier than the other side. Those kind of things can be clues. And so if we know that, that's where laterality, I think, can be kind of cool to go. If I'm having something where, let's just say I have like a ton of right side chronic pain, could I be doing more imagery-based stuff? How does that actually work for me? Because that's probably living a little more in the right cortex. And maybe that would be creating a better response for me on the same side. And conversely, if I were having left side chronic pain, can do more verbal stuff, more like expressing what, what I'm feeling. Can I do more like listening to words and trying to process that? That could be like a cool thing to play around with. And of course, you know, we could spend hours talking about these, these paths are so interesting. And there's, you know, excitation and inhibition going on with this. To me, the main thing is always, I'm always going to go back to testing to assess and reassess because I, I love to think this way, but I, I also just am going to kind of test everything when you work with me to be like, let's just see. And I, I like to say the voice doesn't lie. Like your voice will tell us in real time what is happening. What I find, which is, is so cool. So I, I was taking a course last month um, with a lot of medical folks. And in the intro, you know, people often say what they're doing and then they get to me and I'm like, I'm a singing teacher. And they're like, why are you here? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, and then you know, I chat with them on the break and you can sort of see it dawn on them where they, they go like, you know, did I hear you right in the intro? I'm like, yeah, I apply this stuff for singers. I apply like, you know, this brain work for singers and the, and you see their face go, Oh, you're using voice as the assessment. I was like, yes, exactly. I'm using voice as the assessment because voice is a reflex mediated out of the brainstem that I just said there. And it is telling us in real time what's happening because of course we know we can't consciously control the speed of our vocal folds, you know, thousand times a second at high C, you can't control that. And so there's this, I think that's why singing is so fascinating is that it's this release into a reflex. It's a trust thing in the end to be like, what, what the hell is going to come out of my mouth right now? But if we think about that as a way to as a barometer of what's going on in the brain, I think it's such a, a nice lens on it to start to go, I will always know when I'm on the right track. And I like to share with folks that we suddenly, you know, we have so much information at our fingertips all the time. Now, the trouble is never, can I get an opinion about something? You can get literally a trillion opinions at any moment. The problem is, but what way do I go? And so I find that as life gets more and more information is more and more available, it's more and more valuable to have a physical assessment of yourself to go, well, for me, this is working. I am responding to this as a human organism. I'm responding to this exercise. I am not responding to this other exercise. 
And that's to me what good training looks like. It looks like that of developing that library for yourself of like, this is how I respond so that I perform at my best, so that I age gracefully, I don't get injured, I'm not in chronic pain, all these kind of things. And I do like to share that I have now, I've just played the piano for three hours. I play totally pain-free and have for 20 years. So I, I share that just anyone else who's out there going, this is never gonna change. I am living proof that that is not true. And I have to work to figure out my drills, but I know what they are now. And I never experienced that now. And so it's just, I think it's a, a, it's the science of hope in the end. It's actually saying like, this is a science-based system, but it's a hopeful thing too, because if I can do it, you can do it. You just have to figure out what your drills are that make you the best human you can be. Right. Changes can be made. Yeah, of course. Um, I see them every day. They're amazing. Terrific. Yeah. Um, how I really yeah. hope everybody buys your book. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you. I think they'll be glad they did. Um, how can people find out more yeah. about you and how you work with people? Totally. Yeah. So it's the thesingingathlete.com is the website for the book. I also sell individual courses there. So if you're curious about any of this stuff and want to get into a particular depth, I have courses on lots of different topics there that you can buy a la carte. I also do run an online studio. Um, you can sign up for that at the same site. So the online studio is more like a subscription where you get access to tons of exercises, uh, vocal scales, uh, lots of videos. I do classes through that um, for people who want to sing for me in a masterclass style thing. So that's available you know, anywhere in the world. You can sing for me through that product, the online studio. Um, and what I'm doing now, which is a new thing that I'm launching in, in July, is I'm doing a certification process around the book. So the feedback I've gotten on the book, thank you so much, Diane, for what you said about it. Most people say to me some some version of, this is amazing, I'm overwhelmed. Because it is it is a lot of stuff. Um, someone said to me, it's not bedtime reading. And I was like, yeah, that's a fair comment. It's a, it's, you know, it's a dense, a dense book with a lot of a lot of information in it. So what I'm doing now is providing a, a certification process. It's a three-day class where I go through the first half of the book. And that is me live with you. It's not like a recorded thing. It's like I'm actually sitting with you, going through the book, but more as well, more context, especially for teachers who are trying to be like, how do I apply this in an actual situation and a flow that would make sense for myself? And also for singers who want that deep dive, who want to understand more about what's happening. So you can find out about that as well at the thesingingathlete.com. My main site is andrewburn.com. It's B-Y-R-N-E, andrewburn.com. That's my site for my voice studio. So if you want, if you're in New York, uh, you can feel free to come in for a lesson. You can sign up for lessons there with me, apply to work with me. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the base. I'm on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram if you want to see me talk about the brain and the body a bunch. Um, it's just at singing athlete at the Instagram uh, at Instagram. Great. Terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. The podcast email is braincoversationspodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.